Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community practicing the way of Jesus and thirsting for the life he gives. Good morning, friends. It's good to be with you. Um, as I, I have this in my notes, so I'm going to say it even though it's terribly redundant. Our friend Gail Pedersen shared deeply and really exquisitely last week um, about God's faithfulness in her life. And so it was a really special moment. And if, if you know Gail, you won't want to miss it. And I just want to say, if you don't know Gail, I don't think you want to miss it either. <laughs> um, so I'm going to invite Terry Geffert up, who's going to read our scripture this morning. And the title of my sermon is Three Marks of a Life That Belongs to God. Three Marks of a Life That Belongs to God. And we're going to continue in John 17. This is Jesus's prayer that he prayed before he died, the night before he died. Um, the longest prayer of Jesus recorded in scripture, and it's a prayer that he prayed primarily for his disciples, his followers, both his followers in his day, but also by extension, us. So let's read. A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 14 through 18. I have given them your teaching, and the world has hated them, because they don't belong to the world just as I don't belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They don't belong to the world, just as I don't belong to the world. Make them ready for your service through your truth. Your teaching is truth. I have sent them into the world, just as you sent me into the world. So I asked Terry to stay up because I'm going to have her read this a second time. And this time, I want to invite you to pay special attention to the word belong. Where do you see the word belong? How many times do you see it show up? I have given them your teaching, and the world has hated them because they don't belong to the world, just as I don't belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They don't belong to the world, just as I don't belong to the world. Make them ready for your service through your truth. Your teaching is truth. I have sent them into the world, just as you sent me into the world. Thanks, Terry. So, how many times the word, does the word belong show up here? Four, right? That's a lot for just like three sentences or so. So this must be something very important that Jesus is saying. Um, the word belong, by the way, doesn't show up in every translation of this passage. So uh, let's look at a couple other translations. The word belong doesn't show up, but the concept of belonging is still there. Um, here's another translation. The world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Uh, the world has despised them because they are not products of the world in the same way that I'm not a product of the corrupt world order. And finally, the Living Bible translated as the world hates them because they don't fit in with it, just as I don't. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying that when we follow him, we are no longer primarily beholden to the world, nor are we primarily shaped and formed by the world. Now we are primarily beholden to God, and we're primarily formed and shaped by God and his kingdom, not 
by the world. So this morning we're going to look at three things that will mark us, three things that will be different about us when we follow Jesus and when we belong to God, when we belong to God more than we belong to the world. You could think of them as three signatures of the Spirit's work on our lives. Now, there are, of course, other markers, other differences we could talk about, but we're just going to look at three this morning. And I share these three not as a prescription, uh, not, not as a prescription for us to strive for, but rather as a description of who we are being shaped by the Spirit into as we walk more closely and more and more collaboratively with Christ. And so the first mark that we're going to talk about, the first way in which we will be different when we belong to God more than to the world is that we will define success differently. What the world calls success, we will not call success. And what we call success will not be what the world calls success. Let me ask you guys a question, and I want to field some answers here. So maybe if you're bold enough, you could raise your hand, and I'll, and I'll call on you, and you, you, could, you, could, you could share a thought here. But my, my, my question is, what do you perceive as markers of success in our culture? According to the gospel of American culture, what does success look like? Anyone? Sam? Money. What else? Authority. Ooh. Having authority, sign of success. Other signs of success in our culture. What do people strive for? Yes? Influence, gaining influence, having influence over other people. This, that was what you were going to say too? Same thing. There's lots of things. There's got to be a few others. What else? Signs of success, Ian. Uh, reputation, status, title, having a name, being known. Doris? Oh, building yourself up on kind of on other people's backs. Like, put, put, yeah, yeah. At Mark? Winning. Oh, I like that. Jordan? Uh-huh. Yeah, the perfect family. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom? Respect. respect. Having respect. Interesting. Jake? Comfort. Like like having material comfort? Is that kind of what you're talking about? Or something, another kind of comfort? Yeah, material comfort. Elena? High productivity. Putting the work out. Getting things done. Success. Anything else? Yeah. Amanda? Autonomy. Oh, being independent. Not having to depend on other people. Yeah, that's a very interesting answer. Any last answers? Doris? Having a dog. Can I add to that having a car? I think that's important. I think a lot of people think also of home ownership, right? If you're renting when you're like, you know, a certain age, that might, you might, or, or if you, you know, don't. Yeah, there's a couple other, other things. Awesome. What about having children who achieve or who are prosperous? Um, Having education for, for, for in our culture, I think that that can, be, that can be also a sign of success and that maybe people who don't ha- you know, have a, a certain degrees might kind of feel like, uh, like that, that people look down on them for that. That could be um, uh, something that also is a part of the, the um, equ- a success equation in our culture. Um, can I just add also, 
um, looking nice. Yeah, I think outward appearance can be really important. And, and that's also part of the way we judge other people's success, right? Um, anyway, so let's contrast uh, the life of Jesus with this. Now, we don't know what Jesus looked like while we're talking about physical appearance. We don't know what he looked like. Uh, there's nothing to suggest, though, that he was particularly handsome. And in fact, if we want to go by the Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah in Isaiah 53, here's what we can say about Jesus' appearance. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Uh, We know that Jesus uh, didn't marry, didn't have a family. He was a lifelong bachelor, a celibate man who did not have progeny. And that did not exactly look like success in his day, uh, nor does it in ours. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we who follow him are all called to be single and celibate all of our lives. But it does mean, and this is important, that being single and celibate can go hand in hand with a highly satisfying and highly successful life. So what about Jesus's career? Well, whatever stability Jesus had uh, as a carpenter in his hometown of Nazareth, he gave it up to embrace a life of poverty and uncertainty uh, on the road as an itinerant preacher. Uh, Now, his followers were not the kinds of contacts that a networking expert would get excited about. Uh, Fishermen, uh, tax collectors, tax collectors were so despised in his day. I mean, they would have been not not an asset, but a liability. They wouldn't have even been neutral. They would have been a downright liability to his reputation. Um, Not to mention that he opened up his social circle to include prostitutes. Now, on top of all of this, Jesus developed some very real enemies uh, that made life very hard for him. And in fact, his enemies restricted his freedom. Uh, He had to constantly navigate where he went, where he spoke, when he spoke, because the Pharisees were hot on his trail. Uh, And eventually, of course, we know that his enemies uh, get their way with him, right? And so Jesus uh, ends up dying on a cross, suffering a criminal's death right at the very height of his ministry, and then in the prime of his life, in his early 30s. Not exactly a success story, is it? Well, of course, we know that there's a different end to that story, right? It doesn't end in Jesus' death. It ends in his resurrection, and Jesus' resurrection rewrites every defeat in that story as, as a victory. In fact, you could even say that the gospel, the story of Jesus, is the greatest success story ever told because It culminates in the extraordinary truth that Jesus defeated death, and not just for himself, but for us and for all of creation. But for a long time, Jesus' life did not look like a success. And in the same way, success in our lives isn't necessarily going to look like success as the world defines it. But guess what? That's okay. That's okay because we have found something far more valuable than wealth, far more desirable than prestige or reputation, far more lasting than anything we could acquire or any physical uh, beauty we could attain, Uh, something more beautiful, in fact, than anything we could try on our own to build or to become. So I want to share with you um, a biblical definition of success and And this is it. Success is being the person God calls you to become and doing what God calls you to do in his way and according to his timetable. 
That's from Peter Cesaro's book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, which my small group is reading. Success is being the person God calls you to become and doing what God calls you to do in his way, according to his timetable. I want to share two practices that I think can help us enter into this definition of success. Uh, Something that has helped me, has really helped free me from uh, the world's definition of success. I'm not freed, by the way, from the world's definition of success. I am still learning how to do this every day. I navigate alongside you that temptation to pursue success the way the world defines it. Uh, but, But here's something that I'm learning to ask myself, and I hope that maybe this will be helpful for you. It's just one question. It comes from Tara Beth Leach, a pastor and author, and she asks herself this question every day. Lord, what is the most faithful thing I can do today? Simple as that. Lord, what is the most faithful thing I can do today. I have a feeling that if we asked ourselves that question every day and we lived uh, the answer to that as well as we could every day, uh, we would be successful people. Uh, Do you see how success in the kingdom of God is more about faithfulness than achievement? Can we say this together? Lord, what is the most faithful thing I can do today? So second practice that I want to share with you, and that is simply this. Let yourself get inspired by the life story of someone who lived or is living by God's definition of success instead of the world's. Uh, I've shared with you one of my heroes is, is Henry Nouwen who inspires you to live God's definition of success. These are three people who inspire me. One is Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen was a Catholic priest, tremendously popular professor at Yale and Harvard. For over a decade, he taught in the Ivy League. And he spent, and, and then he, he, he followed God's call and his own heart uh, to a totally different life. Um, he gave up his uh, teaching um, at Harvard and Yale and uh, embraced a life of living with and serving people with disability in Canada. And um, he actually spent several hours a day caring for a man named Adam who was profoundly disabled. Adam couldn't uh, talk. Adam couldn't walk. Adam couldn't eat on his own. A- and, and, and Henry Nouwen would help him dress in the morning and help him uh, bathe and help him get his... Um, breakfast, and, and he continued to write, and he would also continue to speak. Uh, but when, <laughs> to Henry Nouwen's surprise, God showed up to him through Adam in really amazing ways, so much so that um, when and Adam eventually died, Henry Nouwen wrote a book about his life and what God taught him uh, through Adam about, about God and about loving. It's a beautiful book. It's just called Adam. Another hero of mine, um, Lilius Trotter. Anyone here heard of Lilius Trotter? I've mentioned her name once or twice here before. Lilius Trotter. Um, Lilius Trotter was poised to become a household name in Victorian England for her exquisite art. Uh, But instead, she chose to follow God's call and her own heart to be a missionary in Algeria. She never gave her art up, by the way. It's just that it wasn't discovered in her day. Uh, because she didn't pursue that path. She didn't become famous for her art. 
um, because God had something more meaningful and more beautiful for her life. You can find her art today. It's starting to be published. Her journals are starting to be published. There's a beautiful documentary about her life called um, Many Beautiful Things. Finally, who has heard of Eric Little? Anyone heard of Eric Little? Um, who has heard of Chariots of Fire? The movie, okay, maybe a few more of you have heard of that. Eric Little was a, a Scotsman, a, a Scottish, a man who broke a world record as a runner in the 400 meters race in the 1924 Paris Olympics. Uh, and the movie Chariots of Fire is about that. Um, the movie, by the way, was made in the 1980s. It's a little dated, but the story does not get dated. That is a timeless story. Well, after the Olympics, in fact, the year after the Olympics, Eric Little, he turned down a life of fame to be a missionary with his family in China. He had been born in China, and so he went back to China to, to serve there, and he served as a teacher in China. A and eventually, when war broke out in China, his, missionary, his, his um, brother was a missionary doctor, and so Eric would go out into the streets, and he would find injured people and bring them back for his brother to treat who inspires you to live God's definition of success instead of the world's definition of success? Well, there's a second mark that I want to talk with you about, a second mark that we will bear when we belong to God more than to the world. And this one might surprise you. We will rest differently. We will rest freely. Now, I don't just mean that we'll be good at taking naps. I highly recommend them. I, I like to think of Jesus as taking naps. I think there's a little bit of evidence of that. Um, but what I mean is that we will be a people of Sabbath, a Sabbath-keeping people who understand that rest is a good thing. Rest is nothing short of a gift from God for our flourishing and for the flourishing of his world. Every time we Sabbath, we remind ourselves that we don't belong to our jobs. We don't belong to our career tracks. We don't belong to the economy. We don't belong to society's expectations for us. We don't even belong to uh, certain family expectations uh, uh, of us that we might be carrying. But instead, we belong to the one who sets his people free. Remember the story of God leading the Israelites out of Egypt, God delivering the Israelites from slavery. Well, once he delivers them uh, under Moses um, from Egypt, he gives them the Ten Commandments, right? And one of those commandments is to cease from work on the seventh day of every week. Why? Why should they cease from work on the seventh day of every week? Well, because the Israelites had been slaves and they didn't know how to rest. They needed God to help them out. God was essentially saying, and I think he's still saying this to us, I did not create you to be slaves. I don't want you to go back. I don't want you to go back to slavery. So take one day a week off to cease from your work and remember that you are not beholden to your work. You belong to me. Friends, Sabbath is radical. It's countercultural. 
It can be challenging to first establish in your life as a rhythm if you haven't already. And if you're thinking right now, I will never, that, that's impossible. I'll never be able to do that. I, I just want to put you at ease and say Sabbath does look different for different people. Uh, there's different ways to Sabbath. I'd love to talk with you more about that. Um, but I also want to say pray because if you can't find a way, you know, God who opened the Red Sea, he can lead you into Sabbath. He can find a way. He can make a way. Um, And so Sabbath is life-changing. Once you've stepped into that rhythm, you won't want to step back. When we Sabbath, we powerfully bear witness to God's reality. How many people can you name who are typically well-rested? Probably not many. Um, Rest is a rarity these days, isn't it? But rest should not be a rarity in the kingdom of God. It shouldn't be a rarity in the kingdom of God. We should be (laughs) exhibit A on how to rest well because every week we get a whole day to practice. Now, there's another kind of rest I want to talk about. Uh, In addition to Sabbath rest, another kind of rest that marks us when we belong more to God than to the world, and it's rest in our limitations. Not rest from our limitations, but rest in our limitations. I know that sounds counterintuitive. It is. Our society constantly asks us to live beyond our limitations, right? Most of us do this every day on some level. Uh, We try to fit more things into an hour than an hour can possibly contain. We say yes to things we should say no to. We try not to disappoint anyone. We want to do our best to please everyone, even if that's unrealistic. And I think this would probably be a great spot this morning to stop and remind ourselves that Jesus had limitations. Now, of course, Jesus was fully God, but Jesus was also fully human. Jesus lived in a human body just like yours and mine, and he couldn't fit any more into an hour than we can. He couldn't say yes to everyone. He, he didn't heal every sick person. He didn't take on every disciple, every, everyone who said they wanted to follow him. And when his disciples and he, and he, when they were in Capernaum, and the people in Capernaum, they wanted him to stay and to keep ministering, to keep performing miracles, keep teaching them. They were all ears. They loved him. And the, and the disciples said, let, let, let's stay. And he said, No. Because there are other towns to bring the the good news of the kingdom of God to. And that's why Jesus came, to to preach among the towns, not in just this one town. So it turns out that Jesus knew his limitations well, probably better than most of us do, uh, know ours. And he operated comfortably within them, didn't he? He operated comfortably within them. Now, I want to give a caveat. There are times and places when we're called to break through our limitations. Not every limitation is something that we're called to embrace. But that's a topic for another day. Um, Today, we're going to focus on the fact that limitations are actually a part of God's design for us. And very often, our limitations are actually gifts. They're gifts. God uses our limitations for our good. Uh, Here are a few ways that he uses our limitations to protect us to give us direction, to teach us wisdom, to shape us in humility, to help us realize that we're not God, to help us to depend on him, 
and to help us to experience him. Our limitations are places where we can meet with God. And I believe they're where, uh, places where God wants to meet with us. So here are some limitations I'm learning to, to, to embrace. I wonder if you can relate to any of these. I can't be someone other than who I am. Anyone else <laughs> have to come up against that limitation? Man, I've tried. Um, and, and I'm getting better at being more comfortable not being somebody else. Um, but there are so many ways in which I want and have tried to be somebody else. It doesn't work. It just doesn't go well. But that's okay because who I am is a gift that God has given me. And I need to keep working on um, really unfolding that gift and letting God use that gift. Secondly, I can't fix uh, everyone's problems. I I can't fix everyone's problems. In fact, I pretty much can't fix anyone's problems. Sorry, guys. (laughs) But I can love people. I can serve people. I can pray for people. I can bear witness to God at work in people's lives. I can I can wait with people to see where and how God will show up, and I can celebrate with them when he does. I can hold faith and space for people. I cannot please everyone, and this is hard because I do not enjoy saying no. I do not enjoy disappointing people. In fact, I'm pretty scared to disappoint people, Uh, but I'm learning that I can't please everyone. And finally, I, I can't save the world. I can't save the world but I can be a part of what God is doing to restore the world to himself. I can be a part of that, and I want to be a part of that. So let me offer a practice um, that I've gleaned from uh, pastor and author Ruth Haley Barton that I think will be helpful for us as we um, uh, embrace the gift of our limitations. And it's simply one question to ask yourself from time to time. And it's a question that might be especially good to ask yourself if you're someone who's tempted to chronically live beyond your limitations. And this is the question, how good am I doing at being human? How good am I doing at being human? Can we just take 30 seconds with that? I want to give you 30 seconds to to sit with that question. And maybe some area of your life will come to mind where, where you're doing a good job and you're embracing your limitations and being human. You're receiving the gift of humanity that God has given you and you're honoring him with it. Maybe something will come to mind and you're going to realize Actually, I'm not living as if I, I'm living as if I weren't human. How good am I doing at being human? Can I just say those babies are doing a great job at being human? They're good reminders to us. So the third mark that we will bear when we belong to God more than to the world is this. We will have hope when we face the future. We will have hope. We will face the future with hope, not with cynicism, not with fear, not with despair. And this is big because the world we live in has many reasons for us to not have hope hope, right? There is real danger in our world, and we're subject to it. From time to time, bad things happen. In fact, sometimes very bad things happen. 
When we look at the world stage, we see bad things happening on a massive level that we were never designed to be able to absorb or make sense of. We've got war, flooding, famine, tyrants coming into power, tyrants holding on to power, and a climate crisis that's making the future of human life on earth more and more precarious. And on top of all of these things, and here's the worst part, we're all going to die. right? Some of us sooner, some of us later. We're all going to die. Now, I know that's a, a, a bit of a downer, but here's the thing. It's precisely, it's precisely these realities that make hope hope, right? We can't preach about hope apart from those things. Hope apart from suffering is wishful thinking. But hope in the face of suffering is tested and solid and true. And the people whose hope is the most compelling to me are the people who are intimately familiar with suffering. They're people who, in the crucible of their pain, have let God work a deep conviction in their souls, a conviction that there's a reality that transcends our reality, a reality that will outlive our reality, an eternal, unshakable reality, and that reality is God's love. It's his kingdom. That reality is that there is a day that is going to come where in the much-quoted words of, of Tolkien, every sad thing will become untrue. C.S. Lewis says this, some say of, of temporal, um, some say of temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Now there's something to think about. As Douglas McKelvey says in his beautiful book, Every Moment Holy, death is an enemy whose assault can inflict no lasting wound. There's a lot of bad news in our world and even in our lives, and I know many of you are living with some very bad news right now, this morning. But the good news gets the last word, and that's our hope. And here's the good news, that we know the one who is himself life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Our life is bound up in his life, and our future is bound up in his love. Those two things are inextricable. I'm going to close with a story. One day, William, or Bill Hendricks, was standing in his kitchen. He was making sandwiches for his three daughters to take to school. The previous year, and by the way, this is a story about hope. The previous year, his wife Nancy had passed away from cancer after an illness that had lasted for seven years. It was a harrowing illness, and it ended in a lot of pain. It ended in tragic loss for him and for his three daughters. And since her death, Bill had carried around with him the image of his wife's pain in her final days. And all of his thoughts and all of his memories of her since her death were filtered through the lens of her suffering in those last days. He couldn't remember her or think of her apart from that, from those uh, very hard memories. It was a tremendous weight that he bore. He didn't even realize he was bearing it. It was just his new reality. And then one day, 
as he's spreading mayonnaise on the bread slices uh, for his uh, kids' sandwiches before they went to school, four words expressed themselves in his mind, four words that didn't seem to come from him, four very clear and unmistakable words, and they were this. He's alive, you know. Bill was caught off guard. He knew these words referred to Jesus. He had been a believer all of his life, ever since he was a kid. This was not news to him that Jesus was alive. But the words were so surprising that he stopped what he was doing. He stood there and he began to ponder. And he began to think uh, about Jesus and remember Jesus' death and and his passion, his suffering on the cross, how his life was unjustly and very painfully taken from him uh, at the very prime of his life. And then he heard those words again. He's alive, you know. And he realized that Jesus really was alive in a way that he'd never realized before. Jesus' suffering really was history. Jesus' scars really were healed. And in that moment, he realized that the same thing was true of his wife. His wife who had suffered tremendously and unjustly and, and, and who died in the prime of her life, her suffering was passed. Her scars were healed. She was alive, even more alive than than she had ever been because she was with the very source of her life. And in these moments, as Bill was standing in the kitchen, something changed. A weight came off his shoulders. For the first time in a year, he felt like he could breathe again, like he had been underwater the whole time, and, and now he could breathe, and he felt free. He felt free to live. And over the next three months, he was very active. He did more in three months than he had been able to do in the whole year previous because he had a new energy, a new vitality. He had a new hope. Ten years later, Bill wrote a memoir called The Light That Never Dies. And one of the things he writes in his memoir is this. God's loving kindness extends to the grave. It doesn't just go away when we die. It never will. He even goes into the grave with us and for us. Talk about hope. Friends, when we belong to God more than to the world, we have a hope for today because God is with us. We have a hope for our world because however bad it gets, we also see God's hand at work in it. And we have hope for tomorrow because we know that God will be with us then because our future is inextricably bound in his love. And when our time comes, we won't go into the tomb alone, but with Jesus. And we will hear his voice calling us out of it. Just like Lazarus heard Jesus calling him by name out of the tomb, Jesus will call us by name. He will call us into life and life, and life, and more life. Friends, this is our hope. It's a hope that will not disappoint because it's based on the living promise of God. We really do have a wonderful future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
We thank you that you are gently and beautifully with us this morning, ministering to our hearts. Whatever these words have brought up for us, you are in those situations. You are with our grief. You are with our hope. Lord, you are with us when we feel convicted, uh, wherever we might feel convicted, because you are wanting to bring us to a place of freedom, like you brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. So forgive us, Lord, when we have embraced the world's definition of success instead of yours. Forgive us, Lord, when we have worked ourselves beyond our limitations, when we have neglected Sabbath and we have gone about our, our, our work, our world, our families unrested, when you have invited us to be rested. Would you lead us like you led the Israelites out of Egypt, lead us into Sabbath, teach us rest, and we will honor you, O Lord. And Father, we just and thank you that there is a reason for hope. Whether or not we feel it, we know there is a reason for hope. And we pray that that reason would become increasingly clear to our minds and hearts. Oh, Lord, as we open up your word, as we see you involved in our lives and in our world, and as we take more and more steps to walk uh, with you, Jesus, to walk more closely and more collaboratively with the one who created all things and who is redeeming all things and whose blood has bought all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're listening to the official podcast of Church of the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church of the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at www.wellchurchvt.com.